Well, if you've got a Bible there, it'd be handy to have that open uh, at 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Uh, I think all the words that I'm referring to are going to be up on the screen as well, um, but uh, there's a few bits uh, in the surrounding verses that uh, you might like to have a look at as well. I'm going to pray and we'll ask for God's help as we consider his word together. Father, please give us uh, receptive hearts this morning. Help us to um, be ready and willing uh, to submit our lives to you uh, as you teach us more about yourself and you reveal to us more of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we pray that we, for our part, uh, would be ready and willing to obey you uh, and to allow you to impress those things uh, on our hearts and our minds, uh, the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we relate to others. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the tension between my freedoms and your rights is as old as humanity itself. Uh, in any culture, in any society, there's going to be a conflict between people's competing rights. Uh, now, as a regular uh, thing, I'm, I'm not an active user of Facebook, um, but a few years ago uh, I decided I wanted to, to post about something. Um, the RFS, the Real Fire Service, had been doing a whole bunch of controlled burns over a series of weeks, and all that backburning had resulted in repeated days where the city was shrouded in smoke. And a few people that I know uh, who suffer from respiratory illnesses were uh, suffering. Uh, it was really uh, doing them in. And so I posted on Facebook, well, I've got to confess, it was a bit of a rant uh, about you know, who, who the Rural Forest Service was accountable to and who gave them the right to uh, make four million people in the city suffer. Uh, look, it was a mistake. Uh, I, it, it took me pretty much a day, I think, uh, to read and respond to all of the, uh, the, the raging responses uh, to my post on Facebook. And I remembered at that moment why I stopped posting anything remotely close to an opinion on Facebook. And so I've since repented of that, and, and I haven't done it since. Uh, that, along with many other things, it's an issue of competing rights. The rights of some people to feel protected from the threat of bushfires, uh, and the rights of others to be able to breathe clean air. I think it's fair to say that we live at a, a time when people, well, they're certainly not shy about identifying and demanding their rights, whether that's the rights of employees, or people from the uh, LGBTQI community, or even the asthmatics who want to breathe clean air. Um, and on the whole, I think as Christians, we want to stand with those, don't we, who, who are neglected, who may feel mistreated within our society. We want to be people who contend for the rights of the oppressed, to demand that a person's God-given worth and dignity be respected. That's a part of our brief. But issues of competing rights are never simple, are they? Uh, the conflict between one person's rights and another person's freedoms, those things are never easy to untangle or, or certainly not easy to find neat solutions to them. It can be hard to work out what the right thing to do is, even with all of the best of intentions. Well, in this section that we're looking at from 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul wants to deal with issues of rights and freedoms particularly in the context of church life, the Christian life. And he starts with something very specific to the Christians in Corinth. Uh, the opening words of chapter 8 go this way. 
Now, about food sacrificed to idols. The issue is about whether or not the people in the church were allowed to eat food that at some point uh, had been offered in sacrifice to an idol. And this was a real dilemma for the Christians in Corinth. Now, it may not be a dilemma for you. In fact, you might feel inclined to switch off at this point because, well, when was the last time you had to think about that? But there certainly are still many parts in the world today where this is a very live issue for Christians in their community, particularly in uh, lots of Asian cultures. And so there's this very specific issue that Paul wants to deal with for the Christians in Corinth. And, but while this issue is specific, I think the principles that Paul lays out for us as he seeks to deal with that in the church at Corinth um, are relevant to all of us in how we relate to each other in the life of a church. But back in Corinth, um, there were numerous temples uh, to different Greek and Roman gods. This is the, the ruins of the temple to Apollo, uh, that's still there in Corinth. And the temples back in those days didn't simply fulfill a religious function. They also played an important social function within their society. They were the common gathering place for people, for feasts and for festivals and for all sorts of special occasions. At times they would have operated a little bit like a reception centre might operate today. And the food at these feasts would almost always have been sacrificed in the name of the God of the temple. And so for the newly converted believer in Corinth, who's come out of that pagan culture, they had to decide if they could continue to participate in those sorts of rituals, those sorts of festivals. And even more complicated than that, I think, something as simple as visiting the local butcher became complicated. Much of the meat that would have been sold in the local marketplace would have come down from the temples and the, the ritual sacrifice that was taking place in them. And there were some people in the church saying that because of that, uh, the meat at the butcher was tainted, it was defiled, and the Christians shouldn't eat it. Now, there was a diversity of views within the Corinthian church. We can pick that up from Paul's letter. Uh, there were those that were saying that it didn't matter, they had great freedom in Christ, it didn't matter where they ate or what they ate, these things were, were irrelevant in some way. And at the other end of the scale, there are those who are saying that participating in this and even eating that meat was to effectively participate in the worship of an idol. So how does Paul handle this situation? What advice does he give them? Well, before kind of addressing any of the specifics, he starts talking about love. Um, have a look at verse, uh, well, halfway through verse 1 there. He continues, he says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now, having introduced this issue of food sacrifice to idols, it's an odd sort of thing in a way that Paul shifts tack almost immediately to start talking about knowledge and love. But the reason why he does that is because the, the issue for the Corinthians is not fundamentally one about food, the issue is about whether or not they're acting in love towards one another. See, just because you know something can make you arrogant, can make you insensitive to others. But knowledge that's governed by love will always seek to build other people up. And so in verse 4, he tells us something that, well, we ought to know about food and about idols. It says there, 
so then that eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. The Corinthian Christians have access to this wonderful knowledge that there is only one true and living God, that everything else, other gods, other idols, they're all a fabrication. And so when you know that, you know that, well, these other so-called gods, they're idols, they're, they're not real, they don't have any real power, so in that sense there's nothing to fear from them. And so if you simply acted on what you knew, well, it wouldn't really matter where your food came from, would it? Or what had happened to it? It's just meat. And that's how some people in the Corinthian church have approached this issue. But the problem is, not everyone has that knowledge. That's what Paul says in verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sac sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. See, there are some in the church that uh, haven't yet grappled or worked through the issue of idols. They still think an idol is something. And so when that person goes ahead and eats something that's been offered to an idol, they think the meat is defiled. And when they go and do that, they're effectively sinning against their own conscience, which is a way of saying that they're doing something they, that they believe is wrong, that they believe God wouldn't, wouldn't want them to do. And so what are you going to do? Eat the meat or don't eat the meat? Well, in the end, it's not really about the food. And it can't just be about what you know. There's more to it than you simply exercising your freedom and your rights, even if you know that there's nothing wrong with eating the meat. Paul says we need to consider what is going to be most loving and helpful to others. And so this is what he says in verse 9 and verse 13. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Simply knowing that you're free to eat whatever, it's not the end of the story. It can't be. You need to think about how you exercising your freedoms and your rights could potentially be a stumbling block to a fellow Christian. So you can be completely in the right, but at the same time be completely wrong if you're not acting in love. There are going to be those areas in the Christian life where we're going to disagree with each other. There's going to be a range of opinions among Christians, differing views about things, how we should conduct ourselves, how we should do church. Now, that's not to say that everything is sort of up for grabs and simply matters of opinion. You only have to go back to chapter 6 to see what Paul has to say about sexual immorality to know that that's not the case. There are some things that are just off the table. But there are going to be other times where we need to weigh these things up. It's not going to be simple. Um, and certainly times where we're going to need to curb our freedoms, curb the exercise of our own rights for the sake of others. Now, I think there is a bit of a danger in what Paul's saying here that it, it can be applied in a way that uh, you kind of you end up becoming beholden to every kind of hang-up and quirk or petty issue that a fellow brother or sister in Christ might have. So, for example, and I've had this experience, 
Um, if someone comes along and tells you that they believe that the Harry Potter series of books are from Satan, they're demonic because of the magic that's in them, does that mean that you have to stop reading those books or stop your children reading those books because they're upset by that, because that offends them? Or if someone in your church decides that in coming into church, um, all men should be better dressed. In fact, all men should wear ties when they come into God's house. Does that mean all the guys in church have to start wearing ties in order that that person doesn't take offence? Well, not necessarily. Because I don't think what Paul's saying here is that whenever to do things that uh, upset other people, the issue is really about whether or not you're likely to cause that person to do something that they think is wrong, to lead them into sinning against their own conscience, um, whether or not your behaviour is somehow going to encourage them to do something they think God shouldn't, uh, God doesn't want them to do. And so the, the tie example, I suppose, the tie person is probably not going to stop wearing their tie because you don't wear a tie, and the anti-Harry Potter campaigner isn't likely to start picking up the books and reading them because you are. See the difference? Our concern has to be for each other's spiritual health. And so it's not about being held to ransom by the most easily offended person or, as Paul would put it here, the, the weaker person, the person with a weaker conscience. I'd say he's talking there about the least mature people. It's about acting in love towards one another in a Christian community and, and being sensitive to each other's consciences. But I don't think it means we have to capitulate every single time someone complains about something. So maybe for us, food being sacrificed to idols is not the issue. Um, I think perhaps a more recent and common example within our culture would be the issue of drinking alcohol. There are some Christians, and probably a diminishing number to be fair, um, who, who think that Christians ought not to drink alcohol. Um, the temperance movement has rather largely petered out, I think, um, but uh, it's still a live issue in some circles. Now, you may know that essentially there's nothing wrong with alcohol in itself. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that alcohol is inherently sinful. Christians are not to consume it. You may have that knowledge, but maybe not everybody does. Perhaps a Christian brother or sister thinks that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. So what to do? Well, not necessarily a simple solution, but I'd suggest you might want to be careful if you ever have that person over to your place for dinner. Certainly don't ever try and embarrass them into drinking or um, kind of egg them on to have a drink, especially if you know that they think that would be wrong for them to do. And maybe it's just more considerate altogether to leave the beer in the fridge and the bottle in the cupboard. We need to be willing to ask yourself the question, if you're willing to, curtail your rights to suspend some of your freedoms out of love for a brother or sister in Christ. Now, of course, knowledge is always a good thing and that might be a good opportunity to invite the conversation about whether or not there is any biblical reason to stop drinking alcohol. Knowledge is always a good thing to share. But if someone is not convinced... Don't make life difficult for them. Remember that love trumps knowledge. You can see how far Paul's willing to take that idea, idea there in verse 13. He says, 
If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. That's the level we need to be prepared to go to in foregoing our own rights out of concern and love for others. Well, in chapter 9, uh, Paul goes on much in the same theme, but he, he shifts focus a little bit. Um, and he starts talking about how the gospel should impact the way that we think about these things. And he, he talks about himself effectively. Paul talks about his own life as an example for what that might look like. And in particular, in his work as an apostle. So verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul knows who he is. He knows the role God has given him as an apostle. He knows both his freedoms in Christ and his rights as an apostle. And he talks in particular in this chapter about the right that he does have to be supported in his work as an apostle, um, to be financially supported in his work. Uh, He uses all kinds of little analogies in verse 7. He talks this way, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Paul's not afraid to say that in his work, gospel work, as an apostle, he's got the right to be supported by his fellow Christians, including the Corinthians. But Paul says that even though he has those rights, that doesn't mean he'll insist on using them. And in fact, with the Corinthians, he says he didn't. And why? Well, he says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says he was willing to forego his rights because there was something more important at stake. The gospel. Now, it's hard to say exactly why Paul receiving financial support from the Corinthians would have hindered the gospel in that place. Um, I, I guess the answer might be obvious. You know, people may well have been able to accuse him of being in it for the money. It would have potentially tainted people's uh, view of his, his motives in sharing the gospel with them. Paul doesn't really explain why here, but in any case, Paul says he gave up that right to financial support so that the gospel wouldn't be hindered. In fact, Paul says that's how he's tried to approach his entire life. Go down to verse 19 of chapter 9. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became to the weak I became weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul's highest priority is to see people accept the gospel message that he preaches, to come to know Jesus through that. He's willing to forego his rights, his freedoms. Um, He'll do all of that so that people can hear the gospel clearly. 
Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying, well, when in Rome, uh, this isn't a matter of sort of an unprincipled practice, being a, a people pleaser, swimming with the tide, insert your own analogy. Uh, Paul's saying here that he makes a conscious choice to shape and modify his behaviour, his lifestyle even, so that he doesn't cause unnecessary offence to people, the people he's trying to share the gospel with. It's about being sensitive to your surrounding culture, about trying to remove stumbling blocks that people might have in hearing the gospel. What are you willing to give up or change for the sake of the gospel? If you're trying to get to know people from another culture, would you be prepared to actually involve yourself in that culture, immerse yourself in it? Give the time that's required to share in people's lives, to go along to their things, you know, even their cultural or their religious festivals. Maybe do something as simple, or maybe particularly difficult for you, I don't know, something as simple as, as eating something that's foreign to you or odd to you. Prepare to be all things to all people so that we might save some. Eating food offered to idols, probably not a situation you're going to face all that often, if at all, especially if you buy your meat from, from Woolworths or from Aldi. But there are plenty of other great areas, things that can and do cause tensions between Christians, things like attitudes towards the Sabbath or, or drinking alcohol. But remember that even if you're in the right, you can still be in the wrong if you're not acting in love. I'm sure that what Paul says here is to offer advice to kind of both sides of the debate in the church in Corinth. He's clearly suggesting that those people who've got a problem with food offered to idols would do well to grow in their knowledge about that, to recognise that, well, in fact, they're free to eat that meat, that the idol is nothing. Paul would like everyone to mature, to enjoy the freedom that's theirs in Jesus. But until then... Paul says you're going to need to keep coming back to these two principles. Firstly, that love trumps knowledge. So always be thinking about how you can act towards someone in love with a consideration for their conscience. And secondly, how can you best promote the gospel? How can you live in a way that will remove barriers and, and roadblocks and hindrances to other people understanding the good news about Jesus? You can apply that in every context you find yourself in. Not just at church, but at work, with your family, uh, among the different cultures and subcultures that we all move in. Think carefully about how your behaviour might be a stumbling block to others. Is there anything in the way that you speak or the way that you act that might be causing difficulty for fellow Christians? And when you're dealing with people outside the church... Is there anything in the way that you speak or in the way that you act that causes a hindrance to people hearing the good news about Jesus? And if you can identify some of those things, are you willing to change? Are you willing to, to give up some of those freedoms? To curb, restrain your own rights for the sake of others and for the sake 
of the gospel. We're going to respond in prayer and Lynn's going to lead us in that. Let's pray. God of love, your love has rescued us from our bondage to sin and death. This knowledge of our freedom in Christ has come at the ultimate cost of Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Please fill us with Christ's sacrificial love this week. By your spirit, give us willingness to curtail our rights and freedoms in order to serve you and others. Give us your mind that puts the interests of others before our own. Strengthen us to encourage and support others with kind words and thoughtful actions. May the world come to know Jesus by the love we show and our faithful witness that our God reigns in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our final song is Good and Gracious King. Notice the words, you deserve the greater glory and nothing in my hand I bring. <laughs>